All right. Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to the Anything But Typical podcast. And as usual, we've got somebody that's anything but typical. We've got Michelle Tuno Bulo as our guest. And I can't wait for you to hear more of her story and hear more of her heartbeat. And so as we normally like to start off this podcast, I like asking this question. So Michelle, here's the situation. You and Todd are out celebrating your 29th birthday that's coming up here on the 13th of November. <laughs> and you're going to Santee Restaurant in beautiful Matthews, North Carolina. And um, as you are getting seated at your table, you overhear a conversation where somebody doesn't realize that uh, you are within earshot of what they're saying. And they are talking about you. What is it that you would like to hear them say about you? Um, that's a great first question. Uh, I think one of the best things I could hear them say is uh, that's, that's Michelle from Bella Tuno. Um, Bella Tuno is the Toms of the baby industry. They, uh, they give a meal for every product sold and they're really uh, changing the way the industry looks at philanthropy. Ooh, that's beautiful. I love it. Ben, we're not even a minute in and you already went into the comparison with Tom's shoes and things like that. So you're way ahead of the direction. I'm already going, Michelle. So this is perfect. Um, I'll give everybody just a quick brief background for you. So Michelle began her career as a human performance consultant and then was the director of brand strategy for Addison Whitney. And then back in 2005, so this is a uh, pretty established company at this point. She founded and is the, uh, currently the CEO as well of Bella Tuno. So before we dive into impact and, and the motivation behind it all and things like that, I want to just start to ask you to explain what Bella Tuno is, what it offers, and then we'll dive deeper into, into the nuts and bolts of it all. Sure. So Bellatino is a purpose-driven baby accessory brand. Um, we make innovative products, mostly feeding and tabletop products, and it's for children from birth to about age three. Everything from bibs and teethers to bowls and plates and trays and pacifier clips. And the true point of differentiation in our brand is twofold. One is we aim to create conversation starters. Um, parenting is fun and it's hard and it's crazy and uh, we just don't recommend doing it without a sense of humor. So when you look at our products, they're supposed to remind you of that. It's that idea that these funny little people are going to grow into the next generation and uh, we put phrases on bibs like why are you peanut butter and jealous or just funny things that keep things lighthearted. The other side of the conversation we want to start is about the changes that we want to see in the world. So we have some collections, like the Kindness Collection, that has mantras like love more, choose joy, stand together, be the difference. Um, and that collection actually doubles down on kindness by giving two meals for every product sold. And then we have the Activist Collection that speaks about social responsibility and sustainability, but in a way that's relatable to children. We believe it's just never too early to start making a stand for what you believe. Um, the other thing that is, is just critical to who we are as a brand is our, our end game is to end child hunger. 
And so when we look at the issue that truly is food insecurity for children in this country and others, it's something that we feel completely called to try to be part of the solution. And so we do give, as I mentioned, one meal for every single product sold. At this point, we are right under 5 million meals, 4.9 donated. And um, it's the number two sustainable development goal from the UN to end poverty. It's a massive crisis. It's only getting worse with the pandemic. And so um, that's really, that's what we want to be known for. They're great products with a greater purpose. You can find us in over 2,500 independent boutiques around the country. Also uh, Target, Nordstrom, Bye Bye Baby, and of course on our own website. I love it. And something that's really important, I think, is uh, the fact that you are a certified B Corporation. And yeah. um, what I think is really amazing is I know three, and I was involved in 10 years ago, becoming one of the first B corporations or B certified corporations with another woman owned CEO where they wanted to be, have a billion dollars under management of the first triple bottom line investment firm for retail investors. And people thought we were crazy and we were sharing the stage with the same folks as the, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and that sort of thing wow. 10 years ago. Um, and I also know uh, Carol Jagu in town with All Green Recycling, which she was the first, you're the second. And what's interesting is all three that I know are women owned and women driven, you know, CEOs. Uh, women-led companies, which I, I just think is a big deal. And, and for anybody that is, go check out B Certified or B Corp Certification. It is an arduous process. That's for sure. It, it's the most daunting thing that I think I've ever been through as far as an application process ever. Mm -hmm. so tell us a little bit more about a B Corporation and, and what led you into that and like what that process was like? Yeah, arduous is absolutely the right term for that. It was the better part of 10 months, the process. Uh, it, it, it starts with somewhat of a, a checklist, to kind of do an intake on where you are. And, and what you're really doing is you're earning points. The most you can get is 200 and you have to get at least 80 to be a B Corp. That sounds like a failing grade. You know, in anything else you do, if you only got 80 out of 200, you'd be like, ah, ah. Um, <laughs> not at all the case to get 80 is near impossible. The top rated companies in the world, like a Patagonia are like 120. Nobody's at 200. Um, it goes through everything from your social responsibility, sustainability, how you treat your employees, volunteerism. It looks at every single facet of your, your company and peels it back to its absolute most vulnerable layer. Every financial statement, it's audited. Uh, and then after you build in all the forms, um, you give all the supporting information. You don't just get to say what you do, you have to prove what you do. And then you go through about a three-part interview where you're questioned on each of those things in a very respectful, get to the absolute truth type way. There's nothing about it that is intimidating, but most companies 
don't get their certification the first round because what you end up with is a checklist of, okay, come back in a year and show that you've done these things. We were extremely fortunate, and um, this is kudos to my team and the way, the way they stand up for what they believe and how, how our mission lives and all of the touch points of our, our business, but we did get certified the first time. Um, kind of skated by, but that's okay, we got it. And um, the, the neat thing about it is B Corp is really a commitment to continuous improvement and to always doing doing better and doing more to use your brand as a force for good. And the way they show that is, it's like you work 10 months and all of a sudden they say, okay, you're certified. And it's kind of like you pat yourself on the back and the very next day you get a report on, now here's what you should be working on to do better. And I love that because it's not just like, okay, here's our little seal of approval. Yay, we're B Corp. It's, you made this commitment. You said that you wanted to use your brand to do X, Y, Z, whatever that is for you. Um, let's do it. And let's do it better than you ever thought you could because now you have the power of a platform and the power of all these resources behind you. It's really a, a no excuses approach to making the world the type of world that is fair for all, equal for all, and good for our environment. Really, really something we're proud of. And we're in great company. I mean, Bombas Socks, Tom's Shoes, Warby Parker, Patagonia, Athleta. I mean, these are just the killer brands that are paving the way for how business should be done. And the fact that, that we get to be recognized is just, it's a, it's a huge privilege. Don't underestimate yourself on that because um, everything that I know about you, <laughs> you are in that same uh, hall of greatness. Um, kind. That's true. So Michelle, I want to build off of what you were just talking about and go to what drove you to actually start Bella Tuna. Um, and because there's one thing to say, hey, I want to go start a company. But to go down the path that you did of starting something with such a mission and impact, mm -hmm. uh, I know there's meaning behind it. So I want to go into what drove you to do this. Yeah. Um, so that's, it's such an interesting question, Ben, because I never wanted to start a company. That was never the goal. This company kind of, just this seed was planted and I didn't have an option. It, it, that's how it felt felt like this company kind of chose me. Um, it was the direct result of a massive tragedy in my life. So my brother was a drug addict and he battled that addiction for 14 years. He died at the age of 30 and at that time I was 27. I was climbing the corporate ladder, um, running a brand strategy department at the time. I was super young to be doing what I was doing and flying to give presentations in Switzerland and Puerto Rico, like wherever there was, it was just this amazing fast paced job that I would probably still be there if, you know, if life hadn't taken me on a different route. But um, my brother was absolutely my best friend and my person. We were very, very different, three years apart. He was super creative and artistic and musical and a massive academic working on his doctorate at the time that he passed. Um, I was a little bit more lighthearted and, you know, like he was in a band and I played soccer and was a cheerleader. We were just very different, but we were just each other's person. And I think at the moment that he died, 
after a really, really long battle, and anyone who's had someone in their life who has battled addiction knows full well that you're all in it together. It is not a single fight, it is a family fight. Um, and so we all felt like we lost, and not only did we lose the battle, but like we lost the whole prize there. It, it was devastating, and so at that point, um, everything stopped. Like all of the accolades that I was getting, all of the promotions and the money that came with that, um, the expense accounts, everything that I thought I was working for just did not matter. It lost total meaning. It was like someone just flipped a switch and the world went dark. And um, I had no idea what was next for me, but I knew it had to be so different than what I was doing at the time. And the only other thing I knew was that Something, it, it was so terrible to lose my best friend. It was so terrible to watch the destruction that happened in my family because of that. But it didn't go away because there's this dark cloud that hovers over things like addiction and suicide and mental illness. And I thought, that is not who my brother was. Like he was an addict. That was something he struggled with. But holy cow, he was hilarious. He was the funniest person I've ever met. And I thought, I'm not going to let his name be associated with just addiction. That's not fair. And so I knew, I didn't know how, but I knew that I would start a memorial fund in his name. And I knew that it would be called the Matt Tuna Make a Difference Fund. And I knew that it would go to 501c3s that would offer people the chance to change the trajectory of their lives. Started out mostly with drug and alcohol rehabilitation programs. Um, at the time I was pregnant, and that's literally the only reason it's a baby company. I mean, I never, I mean, I never even babysat as a kid. I didn't, it wasn't because I had this massive passion for children. I found out I was pregnant and I think it's the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. But um, I just was like, well, it's the point of time that I'm at. Uh, it's right squarely where I am in my life. This baby's coming. And I need to start getting some things for her. And so I started shopping around. Nothing met my sense of style. It was just all oh, so boring, so bland, so expected. And that's just not the world I want to live in or put on my child. It, it, oh, it was just, it was exhaustingly terrible. And so I started making things and I started shopping around more and I started buying fabrics and, um, Long, long, long story short, with a lot of encouragement from friends and family, um, they're like, we think you're onto something. It's, it's a different look. You're making things self-taught, you know, from a, a sewing machine my mom got me, um, that are just different. They just stand out. And so I took my little bag of things to 11 boutiques around Charlotte thinking I'm going to show people things and they're going to say no thank you and then I'm going to pack this up and I'm going to go find a way back to my corporate life or find a way back to something else but that's not what happened at all 10 out of the 11 confirmed that I was onto something and it was a different look and it was what the industry maybe was craving but it hadn't been done and so I found myself with the potential for a company and that company gave me the potential to feed into a, a memorial fund that they could start doing the work that I wanted to do. And that was 15 years ago. And, um, you know, that was the start. And then it just, the whole path has been so many bumps and so many falling down and get back up. But I am really proud to say that we had never, ever sold a product since day one 
without feeding money through the Mattoon Make a Difference Fund. It always goes to 501c3s on the other side. The, the give back has changed a little, but the mission of giving back has never, ever faltered. And that's something we're really proud of. So you- I love that um, story. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is like the fact that you have this brand strategy background um, and where you were basically like, I need to go in a completely different direction. Yet, what was part of your DNA and your, your background and kind of your passion in this whole branding and strategy and differentiation, because that's really what branding I think is, is differentiating. Mm -hmm. For, for sure. You were naturally doing that and it just found a new expression. So talk to, talk to us a little bit more about tapping that and looking back is always easier to see the, the pattern, but your, your, your training as well as like what was, what drove you into brand strategy and how that's expressed itself and continues to express itself in your company. Yeah, you are 100% correct that the brand strategy is all about two things, differentiation and focus. And you just can't be all things to all people or you end up in this sea of sameness and you can't compete in a sea of sameness. And so I knew from the get-go that was not going to be our story. We weren't going to get lost. Um, you were either going to love or hate our look, but the people that loved it, and the people that loved our mission were gonna become loyalists. And we didn't need everybody to buy the brand. We needed people that really relate to it and feel connected to it. And so from the very beginning, we knew our brand position, we knew what we stood for, we knew the look we were going for, and we built authenticity into every bit of it. Um, we also built like touch points into all of it. So we invited our customers to be part of the good that we were doing. Um, I'll say we've gotten a lot better at that over the years. I think because of the way that Bellatuna was launched and the fact that it's my personal story, it was really hard for me at the beginning uh, to really share why we were doing so much good because it was such a point of pain. But I realized it's almost selfish. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's like we were only able to do this amazing work because our customers were buying our products. And so it became truly the, the core of the brand to let everyone know we're doing this together. And it's thanks to you. We, we are a brand that feels like a family to people because we know that without each other, we can't be achieving greatness. And that's um, really that focus, that differentiation, and that shared value is really what makes Bellatuna so strong. And you had gone from such a vulnerable and, and difficult, obviously is an understatement, time in, in your life to now being at the point where you've donated almost 5 million meals to children. Mm -hmm. um, and I have like nine questions I want to ask for that. So I won't throw them all at y'all. <laughs> um, but I want to start with, how is that actually set up? You said it, it goes to 501 C's and how do you pick the ones you're partnering with? What does that look like at kind of inside the company? Sure. So um, it's built into the model. It actually is the Tom's model of 
one for one. So right. for every product sold, we donate one meal. And to figure out who we wanted to partner with on that, we made a massive spreadsheet. And at the end of the day, it, it was who is going to be the best stewards of our money? Where can we make that money serve the most children? And uh, Feeding America rose to the top. And we are so proud to partner with them. They are doing amazing work. Um, we work with them so closely on so many levels. And there's not a better partner out there for us. On a international level, because we want the meals to stay where the product is sold, we partner with the Global Food Banking Network. And we didn't know quite as much about the international landscape. And so that was a recommendation, one of the recommendations from our partner, Feeding America, and they rose to the top out of the ones that they gave us. So if you buy the product in Canada, the meals are going to stay international, mostly in Canada. That's not as much of a one-for-one, one, but if you buy the product in the U.S., they stay in the U.S. Um, one of the things that Feeding America is phenomenal about is education. And so when we started working with them, one in seven children went to bed hungry. And that was the statistic that I heard in 2014 that, that really prompted this, this buy one, feed one movement, because I thought there's, there's no way one in seven children in our country, you know, land of the free, home of the brave, anything's possible. There's no way one in seven children goes to bed hungry. And I started doing a lot of research and I realized not only was that true nationally, but that was true for Charlotte. That statistic was not off in our city. And um, just because the Charlotte that I live in doesn't appear that way, it doesn't mean it's not happening. And so that was the kind of statistic that just like kept me up at night and I'd wake up thinking about it and I have two children and those kids have never even missed a snack, you know, and it, it's everything from cognitive ability to growing and maturity and it's social interaction and, and you don't want their self-esteem to hurt because they, it's, it's every single thing. It's one of our basic needs. And once I heard that, I'm like, we're going to help. We're going to figure out how to help. But here's one of the cool things. I did come across some research that said food insecurity in infancy and adolescence has a link to overabundance or pretty much addictive behaviors in adulthood. And I was like, well, that's, that's, the, that's the tie I need. That's kind of the rainbow there where I can say I can stay committed to my passion project of trying to help people that are addicts or have addicts in their family, but I can also do that through starting young, and one of one of the, the things that will potentially help mitigate the issue of addiction is feeding children. And so there was just such a nice bow that was tied between those two points. So Todd and I and our family were still heavily involved in the give back with um, Charlotte Rescue Mission and drug and alcohol rehabilitation programs, but Bella Tuna Forward Facing, at least, is all meals, and um, it, it just... It makes sense to me. I don't know if it makes sense to other people, but it just, it serves such a strong purpose and fulfills such a big need with hungry children. But in my mind, I'm still honoring my brother by doing it every day. Yeah, I, I was going to ask where and when that, that pivot happened because to start it, like you had said earlier, that trying to help people through things like addiction was the focus. And then right. obviously now it's it's on children with meals, but you, you're right. You tied the bow right to it perfectly. So yeah. um, talk a little bit for us of, of how you balance being a for-profit organization 
with a social impact business plan because the stats on people starting companies and failing, just that alone is staggering of how many don't make it past three years and things like that. And you're doing this and having success while also having such a, a social impact focus and giving so much away. Yeah, so um, it's who we've always been. It's just organic to who Bellatino is. And so I don't see it as balance. I see it as our model. Um, it's like if you start a job out of college, and in my case, I was making 28000 a year, and they mentioned a 401k, and I was like, I can't afford to give money away. I don't even have money, you know? And it's the same concept that if, if you just put it away from the beginning, you don't miss it because you learn to live on what you're bringing home, but then you're going to be so grateful for what you've done with that, that 401k money. Um, that's how I see this model. I mean, we built it from the beginning as a give back. We were always a nonprofit for profit type brand. It's kind of that B Corp model before B Corp existed. Uh, and so in that sense, there's never been a balance that happens. It's just been who we are as a brand. I will tell you one of the smartest things that we ever did was the way the fund is set up the money automatically goes into it and there is a lock and key that we cannot ever pull that back out. It has to transfer out only to a 501c3. And that is beautiful because there are times, as you can imagine, in the recession like 2008, 2009, a global pandemic year where things are just kind of a lot trickier, where it would be really nice to have some extra money. That would really come in handy. But the way that we set it up keeps us so unbelievably honest and authentic that that is never an option. And, um, you know, I, I definitely know I have the integrity to not pull it out anyways, but knowing that there's just, it just doesn't exist. It's part of the model that when products are sold, money will be donated. That money will only go to the places that are, are the designated nonprofits. It's beautiful. And we've never missed it. And it's honestly the engine behind our brand, both internally and externally. That's our secret to success. It's everything. Yep. You, you reminded me of one of the pieces you just said there. Uh, Scott Harrison, the guy who founded Charity Water, um, mm -hmm. hates nonprofit and for-profit as, as verbiage and talks about there being this middle ground of being for purpose. And, and that's what, what you were just talking about reminded me of. It's, it's not that you're one or the other. It's not black and white. You are for purpose. And that's that can exactly. fall under a lot of different categories. Yeah. And there's a huge movement, as I'm sure you know, for that. I mean, I'm a founding member of Kindred, and that's all about purpose and social responsibility. There's the B Corp movement. There's Vital Voices. There are all kinds of amazing programs where um, the business world is seeing that it is equally important to have purpose and profit and the best businesses can do both. Um, and I love it. Yep. I, I love um, this purpose driven business model and where it's not an either or, but it's a yes. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and that's the way our lives should be too. Quite frankly, they should not be compartmentalized where it's a yes, either or, but it's a yes. And, um, I want to go back a little bit when you said, you know, the way that 
you built it from the beginning was it has a lock and key. It automatically goes and funnels into 501c3. Mm -hmm. A unique model. How did you find that mechanism to be able to do that? Because a lot um, of people know about it. Yeah. So we use um, a Fidelity charitable fund for a lot of that. We, we never really wanted to set up our own nonprofit. There are so many out there and they're doing really, really good work. Um, so we just wanted to support them. And so that, that fund was something that my husband actually researched. And I know he spoke with quite a few people. He's definitely the financial mind behind things. And we landed on that one and uh, they've, been, they've been a great partner. So it does exist. I'm sure there's more ways than just the Fidelity Charitable Fund, but for us, that's been a um, really good fit. Yeah, I think that's great because anybody looking to do something like this, I think what I hope happens from this podcast is that it sparks the inspiration that may be dormant in somebody, another owner out there that says, hey, I would like to do something like that and I know you know Casey Crawford with um, Movement Mortgage they've done the same sort of thing with a, a number of things you can use you know National Christian Foundation there are, there are lots of opportunities out there but I think to your point and what Todd did was research it find the right fit but yeah. there are mechanisms out there that you don't have to create the wheel from scratch there that you can absolutely use and it's not too late just because you didn't start it from the beginning that way um you know movement mortgage wasn't started that way either i don't think and, you know i think there are other companies that have made a pivot and said you know I actually want to do something about this as well so that would be my hope for anybody listening that your story would inspire them to take action in something that may you know be dormant inside them Mm. I hope so too. Uh, so building off of that, of the idea of trying to help give people the, the support or the bump or push to, to go in this direction in some capacity, right? Whether it's a business or getting involved or anything like that. What, what are some of those big lessons that you learned about running a mission-driven company, right? If there's somebody that is listening to this and they're inspired by it, but obviously they have no place to start, what are some of those lessons you learned along the way? Um, so it goes back to what I was just touching on. I think sometimes people see it as a sacrifice to give away something that they've earned. So it's hard to either build that into your margins or it's kind of hard to write a big check for something, especially when, when business is rough. But I truly, truly can say without a doubt that the give back has only strengthened our brand and made us so much more successful. Um, there was never a question whether we were going to do it, but what I didn't expect was all the positive that came from it. So I've learned three main things about having a, a purpose-driven brand. Um, I think one of the big things is it, it unites it unites your team. Uh, our team is so committed. We start almost every status meeting with the number of meals we gave back. If a crisis happens and someone's 
hometown or just in America, like the wildfires. We just gave 104,000 meals out to two counties in Oregon and California that were really struggling. And our team gets so excited that we have the privilege of doing that. We are a united front on our team. And it's one of those things that if we were just, you know, rolling out silicone-based products that we feel are safe and funny and all of that, that's great. But the, the commitment and the loyalty that comes with having a higher purpose in these products is just this unifying theme. We go and we show up at pre-COVID, um, a food pantry every month. The team does not miss it. They bring their kids, they bring their families, their husbands, if their mom's in town. And we can't wait and we are the first people to show up and we're the last people to leave because we believe in what we're doing and we believe that it's changing our part of the world. So that, that unifying thing is so powerful with a mission-driven company. The second thing that I firmly believe it does is it empowers people. So I will tell you, we have about 100 sales reps around the country and um, we don't measure their success in the number of orders they write. We don't measure it in the number of dollars they bring in. We measure it in the number of meals they donate. And when it's time to do awards, we give awards based on the number of meals that their sales donated. And I will tell you, they are our biggest cheerleaders. They'll go out to a new store and they'll say, um, you know, I'm here with Bella Tuna. Let me tell you, I personally, through my sales, was able to give 40,000 meals or whatever it was. Um, it's this empowering thing where the people you touch that are even a little bit outside of your company, because they're not our dedicated sales reps, they probably carry 20 other lines, but they're out there so proud to be part of something that's so good. And that empowerment is growing sale. Like the past three years have been so good because they're giving back so much and they feel a part of that. So it's just been unbelievable. And the last thing that I think having this mission does is it, it attracts people. So we will put out a job description and when they read the bio of the company, we just get flooded with amazing people because people want more than just go to work nine to five and then come home. They, if they can go to work and feel really fulfilled and that they're through their nine to five job, making a bigger impact than that and they're on fire and so in, it attracts our customers it attracts our employees I, I tend to tell a story pretty often about um the first time that we were like how are we going to bring to life at market what each store is doing so if they come in market the way market works a store um, like a local shower meal club or something would come to market and they would place an order for our products and we'd ship it within a week or two and what we decided to do was add up the total number of products through the system and at the end of that sale say, okay, you ordered whatever dollar total, but you gave 406 meals to kids in the U.S. by doing that. And we have this pom-pom jar and we would count our pom-poms from under the desk and we'd lay them on the counter and, you know, seemed like a good idea until you're counting out 406 pom-poms, but we ended up like estimating handfuls of 10 and we'd lay them all out and they would put them in this vase and we would watch it grow like a thermometer on you know um and I can't tell you how many people cried when I get emotional when I talk about it because they brought it to life that they're like I did that I gave those meals and we're like well yeah we wouldn't give them if you didn't order it's when you're ordering the products 
they would send their friends to come visit us and place an order. And they'd be like, we want to do the pump pumps. We want to see how many wheels we can give. And it has this attraction because people are good and people want to do good and people want to help others. And sometimes they don't know how. And if they can be buying a product that they want and they need for their store, or they need for their baby anyways, and also be feeding children meals, that's, that's a huge win. And so they, this power of attraction just has been, it's, it's been a game changer for us. And it's all because of the mission. So I want to, I want to go back and um, kind of build off of that purpose, which is clearly um, effervescent within you. <laughs> and it's probably very effervescent within your, your employee base and all your suppliers, as well as those that, that buy your products. Um, but purpose will also help you drive through difficulties. And I want to, you know, you had talked about, you know, get up, fall down, get up, fall down, you know, earlier on in this uh, episode. Yeah. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, some of the, the major hurdles, getting the, the company up and running, but then even along the way, because it's like once it's airborne, doesn't mean that you still don't hit turbulence. So I want to hear a little bit more about that, whatever you're willing to share. Yeah, no, Gary, you're absolutely right. And we have, um, we have become very proficient at failure. <laughs> um, I actually love failure. I, I don't know if I'm one of the few. I don't know if I'm alone on this. But as long as you learn the lesson that you are supposed to learn from it, failure is the best teacher. And just don't fail at the same thing twice is our motto. But, you know, I think at our company, if we're not failing, we're not trying hard enough. We're not putting ourselves out there enough. And so um, my team hears me say that quite a bit. Like, you know, what'd you fail at? And how are we going to fix it? And let's all own it. No one has ever gotten in trouble for failing at our, our company. And that's because I'm the leader of failing. Um, I started this company based on naivety. And that's probably still why we exist. I mean, you don't know what you don't know. And when I was coming into a brand new industry, I'd never done design before, I'd never done manufacturing before, you can only imagine the failures. Um, some of them are ridiculously embarrassing and I, I do share them because I feel like it gives people the confidence. It's like, okay, if she was that naive and that ridiculous, I too should try to do something, right? So um, our first, in everything, I can't even tell you how many failures. It's, it's just unbelievable. Like everything from getting products made, to finding stateside manufacturers, to scaling and all this. But one of the biggest mistakes I think we've ever made, um, we came out really fast and really strong after we were launched. And by 2008, we launched in 2005. By 2008, we were in Gap and we were in Target, and we were like, how did we get here? I mean, that just doesn't normally happen that quickly. And so with Gap, um, they wanted us to do a diaper bag. They had heard of our brand, they loved the mission behind it, and they reached out to us and said, can you do a diaper bag? And I said, we don't do diaper bags. Like, you might want to look into these companies. I was just beyond ignorant and like trying to give them some people I liked for diaper bags. And like, no, we want you to do one. So I was like, well, I can try. And she's like, just, I need it by Friday. This was Tuesday. 
So if you can overnight it, that'd be great. I went and bought fabric, and I, you can't make this up. I stapled together a diaper bag, stapled. And I overnighted it to their San Francisco offices, and she gets it, and she calls me on Friday, and she's like, you know, I really like the design, but I'm not sure that the staples are safe for kids. She's just trying to be so kind. And it's like, oh, we wouldn't staple it. You know, we'd have it manufactured, but that was the only way I could get it for you. And she's like, well, let's try it. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I sent you a stapled bag. You should just take my number out of your phone. This is ridiculous. She, uh, she said, no, we really want to do this. I said, well, we don't have manufacturer abroad. We've never manufactured anywhere but the U.S. Diaper bags can't really be done in full product runs in the U.S. She said, we'll give you our manufacturer. So they hooked me up with their Chinese manufacturer. We probably did about four runs of diaper bags, big runs, um, you know, six-figure POs. And it was just this massive learning curve. They were so nice to us. They made it so easy. Well, the minute that we were not being carried in Gap anymore. We were like, we're really good at diaper bags. We're gonna do a run on our own. Ordered another six-figure peel of diaper bags because we felt like the traction was there. They show up at our distribution center. Keep in mind, we're no longer working with Gap. These are just Bellatuno, four Bellatuno bags. Um, our project manager out there opens it, pulls one up. The handles were not sewn in. On $100,000 worth of diaper bags, they didn't sew the handles in. And I, I didn't know what I didn't know, but apparently you're supposed to do inspections and you hire a third party firm to come and do all this and test all this. Well, I had no idea. So I had $100,000 worth of diaper bags at the DC that had no handles. And it's just like, at that point, you think $100,000 was, in, that was like make or break for us at that point. That, and it's still a lot of money, but it was just a critical amount of money. And I remember thinking, I don't, I don't deserve to have a business. If I can't even figure this out, if it never crossed my mind, then I need to make sure nothing went wrong. But fact is, when they were producing for Gap under the Bellatuno brand, they were gonna dot all of the I's and cross all the T's. But when it was just little Bellatuno by itself, it was like, you know, if we miss something, we miss something. And that was one of those moments that I was like, what do I, what do, I do now? And honestly, it was terrible. We had to have them shipped in the U.S. to a factory, the handles sewn in, it cost almost $10 a bag here to have the handles fixed. We made no money on it. Um, pretty much just broke even when they sold. And it's one of those things that you think, do I, am I really supposed to be doing this? And um, those things happened over and over again. I remember showing up at our first show in New York and I was with our first showroom up there and I talked to her maybe a month before, paid for my space. It's one of these big shows at the Javits Center. I uh, was so excited and proud to be in New York. Was proud of all the work we were doing through the Matt to Make a Difference Fund. So I invited my parents to come with me. Flew them up. We show up at the show and we can't find my products. She had completely forgotten about our brand. It didn't matter to her. She didn't have it there. She ended up pulling out a flower pot, like a potted dish thing and she said I'm so sorry do you have any products with you because you can set them in this flower pot and I've, I've never been so embarrassed in my whole life my parents are here I'm showing them what I've made of their son's legacy and it's sitting in a flower pot in New York I mean there I can't tell you how many times if I didn't have 
my angle of honoring my brother and in turn helping addicts and feeding children, I would have packed up so many times. There are so many stories. It went wrong a lot more than it went right. That's the truth. And I think that's probably true for most entrepreneurs. But I don't think I would have had the tenacity to stick it out if I didn't have a clear end game in mind. You want more failures? Because I've got plenty. (laughs) I think that's one of the most impactful things that we've talked about so far in this episode because having I've run four companies myself and Ben started his first one when he was 19. (laughs) Um, That's one of those things where uh, and I think it was actually Casey Crawford that said this don't compare your show reel with somebody else's I mean you're you're behind the scenes reel with somebody else's show reel right yeah. Well, unless we see the behind the scenes reel of somebody, we think we're the only dunce on the planet. And I've made so many embarrassing <laughs> mistakes myself made on assumptions or whatever. But what I think was so powerful is you identified a, a deeper purpose that was pulling you along through the mud to get you back cleaned up, let's start another day again. It's not, you know, it's not life ending. It's just, you know, embarrassing or, you know, we want to just whip ourselves about it. But I just think that it's so powerful that you've embraced that and you've made it safe for your employees to do that. Mm -hmm. Healthy culture in my opinion, and I haven't even met any, but what you've described, that's a very, very healthy culture. Thank you. So Gary, you mentioned employees and culture and things like that. So Michelle, I want to pivot a little bit. Um, And one thing we haven't talked about on your background before is the human performance side. And if I'm remembering correctly, you studied psychology as well in college, right? I did. Okay. So, so you have this whole background that we haven't even talked about at all. I want to hear a little bit about how that background and your experience in the the human uh, performance as a consultant, how has that led to either more efficiency or better employee performance or anything like that inside Bellatuno? Yeah. um, This probably isn't the answer you're expecting. I I worked for big five consulting right out of college and uh, the training was phenomenal. They sent us away for six weeks to get all this training and it was process training and it was this linear thought pattern um somewhat of a stifling linear thought pattern but nonetheless process and and that part of it was good and the growing up of of just all the travel i did and all that was good but honestly i think i learned more about what i didn't want i didn't want to work at a company or run a company where people felt like a number i didn't want weighted down with rules that you had to put doctor's appointments on a calendar two weeks in advance and get approved time off and that they checked every single day out of the office. Um, I didn't want a process that was so stringent that it didn't leave room for growth or creativity. And so I, you know, keep in mind, I was a 22 year old kid and I like, like most people in this case, I was very average. I only made it two years at that company. Um, 
And I really did get to work on probably about five projects with, with big companies. And I got to learn so much of just what I didn't want in my next role or in a company that I ran someday. It was more eye-opening in that way. I remember that one of my projects was up in DC and it was um, the time, I don't know if y'all remember this, but there was a sniper up in DC yeah. and he was literally hunting people like animals. He and his, his um, it was actually an underage child that was with him. And I was right there. Every time a shot would happen or a murder was happening, it would happen like within two miles. And those two miles kept going around where I was. And I remember going to my boss and being like, I'm kind of terrified. There's no rhyme or reason. This is not, this is killing just to kill. That is, that, that is terrifying to me. And her response was, well, you should probably get an umbrella and run side to side when you're outside. And <laughs> not really what I expected you know like I kind of thought well if you don't feel comfortable with that maybe you can work remotely you have a computer and a cell phone or maybe we can wait until they catch him but no it was like run as if you're running away from an alligator and I thought that is not the answer and so I, I escalated that and I had something else really terrifying happen and and truly nobody cared because I Maybe somebody did. The people I was going to, it did not seem like they cared, and I felt like a number, and I thought, that is never going to happen. We are going to celebrate our people. They are our best resource. If something's wrong, they're going to feel comfortable coming to me, and I'm going to do my best to solve that problem and not solve that problem the way I think it should be solved. Solve that problem so that they feel good about it. And I just learned so much and by no means am I saying every consulting firm is like that by no means am I saying even the one I started at is like that but the people you know specifically that I was answering to it, I just learned so much about how to treat people and how people truly are your best resource and you absolutely need to keep that front and center um so I know you probably wanted to hear about my psychology background played in so strong. And I felt like I was making such a difference. I can truly say I don't think I made any difference in those two years. I was just happy to come out alive. And, um, and I, I, in hindsight, it's where I learned so much because when I started a company, I'm like, oh, we are giving full benefits to everyone. We have unlimited days off because you're an adult. And you're going to work hard and you're going to play hard. And that's our culture. And if you go to the beach two weeks in a row, you better take your computer with you. But you know that. I'm not going to tell you that because that's who you are. Yeah. And that's what we saw when we hired you. And I can say I've only been bitten on that once in 15 years because people rise up. They rise to the occasion. They rise up to respect. Um, they appreciate it. And so that, that's really more of what I learned. Yeah, I've, I've done this enough where I, I've stopped trying to anticipate or expect answers. So, so no, there was, there was no wrong direction there. Okay, okay, good. good. But I do think it builds tough skin. It builds just tenacity in you. It, it was a good place to start. It was not pleasant. It was like 16 hours. Um, I slept under my desk a couple weeks. Like it, it was crazy, but it, I realized how much I was capable of. I just realized it wasn't what I wanted. One of the things that is a, a, a common theme through this story that I've heard is you have 
taken this axiom that I found to be true, which is out of our greatest pain often becomes our greatest ministry to somebody else. And your story, even back to big five accounting or whatever, big five consulting and what you experienced there, pain, you used it to, instead of wallow in it and become a victim in it, you used it to propel you forward into making a positive difference in the next move, which I really, man, that's really inspiring to me. Um, can you talk one more thing, which is, you know, social responsibility can be a buzzword in the marketplace. And a lot of people kind of try to do that with a check the box, you know, but, and you're clearly very driven from the gut, you know, like, man, this is, this is a passion. This is really driving me again from some of that pain, but talk to us a little bit more about social responsibility that companies really have that should embrace or how they tap into that to, to really make a difference versus just check a box. Yeah. Um, well, I think that whatever mission you choose, whatever social responsibility um, you are committed to, it has to have meaning to you. It has to really resonate with you and be a contagious type of mission. Um, I think that it's expected at this point. I think very few companies are starting even in the past like four or five years, the, the climate's been interesting, you know, politically, socially, all of that. If there's an opportunity to stand up for what you believe, um, consumers want that. And that's in all the statistics that we see. Uh, but it's something that has to be authentic to your brand. So using my brand as an example, uh, we make feeding products for children. We donate meals, which is feeding, there's a clear tie there, and it's the number two problem in the world right now. And so if you can align your social responsibility to something that matters both to you, because that keeps you motivated, and to something that the world needs, I, I think that's a, a really, really good place to start. I also think social responsibility, there's, there's two levels of it in my mind. One level is just like, doing the right thing. So for instance, treating your employees right, um, working with factories that are certified with social responsibility, making sure they're treating their people right. I mean, it's one thing to write a check and you're like, well, we are gonna write a check to start all kinds of wells in Africa. But if the people making your products are not being treated in a humane way, there's a huge disconnect. So in my mind, there's social responsibility of just being a good company and then there's the next level of truly trying to solve a societal issue. Being a good company can be good enough. I don't think, I mean, just getting to that level, and we're still working on that. I'm not by no means saying that our products are 100% green or 100% sustainable or our company is zero waste. We're not there yet. We have goals to get there, but we are a very good company. And then building on top of that, we have a mission we believe in that we truly believe is going to have an impact on the world. And so I think it's, we started both of those at the same time. Um, I, I think the, the main kind of get to the table in terms of be a, a strong, good company is have social responsibility 
just as a core value in everything you do. And top of that, layer it with a mission that you really believe in that will keep you motivated. Um, I, I don't see many companies launching today that, that don't have those two things as goals. I think that is just kind of the ticket to success in the next decade. Yeah, no, it makes sense. But a lot of people starting companies have goals like that in their mind, but they don't have it structured as, as a system creating change. Uh, a lot of times it's, it's somebody that wants to do something personally or things like that. But I, I just love the way that you've created this, this systematic structure to, to generate all this change and impact. Well, thank you. And, and one recommendation I would have for any company that wants to become more socially responsible is go take the B, B Corp impact assessment. It is out there. I think it's like bcorp.net or blab.net. Blab is the, the nonprofit that runs the B Corp. Um, you don't have to finish it. You don't have to submit your answers, but it walks you through all of these different pillars of social and environmental responsibility. And it's things that you may have never thought of. And some of them are so easy. Some of them are ridiculously easy, like no plastic in your office. Bring a reusable water bottle. Don't use styrofoam. Use recycled paper in the printer. Some of them are just like check marks. It might cost you a dollar extra a month or something. Just do that. And it's little steps, and then you kind of get addicted to it. You're like, what else can we do? How else can we help? And um, so I, one of my recommendations is it's a long survey. But even if, you, even if you just skim through it, it just gives you really good ideas on what are some of the companies like the Patagonias and the Athletas doing. And no matter how big or small you are, you can do some of those. And so it's a good checklist. And you say some of these I can check off right now. And some of them are my two-year goals and some of them are my five-year goals. But you got to start somewhere. Yeah. That's perfect. Uh, I have tons of other questions, but I'm not going to keep you here for three hours. I texted Gary yesterday and I said, I may keep her on here for three hours, just being selfish, asking questions. Um, but no, that it, Gary, do you have anything else that you want to add or say, uh, before we sign off here? No, I just, you know, I, I would encourage anybody listening to this to, you know, get pretty introspective about and ask the question about, am I doing what I can? And it doesn't mean that you have to change the world in one fell swoop because that really doesn't happen. But I love your story, Michelle, of, you know, being driven by events and allowing even tragedies to shape and make a difference where you're continuing, uh, can continuously uh, evolving, continuously falling forward and embracing that as part of the journey. Uh, so thank you. I mean, it's just been a huge uh, honor to have you on here. You know, I've known Todd since I came back to Charlotte five and a half years ago um, at the Harris Y. <laughs> and that's where I first saw him. But he's talked about you kind of ever since then, which is really cool. So it's cool to have your spouse as your number one fan, I think. You know, oh, it's so. awesome. He's, he's a good one for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah well, we'll I appreciate this opportunity so much, Gary, Then it was, it was, it was a privilege and I appreciate it. Well, it was certainly a privilege for us too. Thank you very much, Michelle. Yeah.